Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? Well, I'd be fine if I could tell time. <laughs> I have time problems these days. <laughs> We're, are we struggling with, um, do we need to go I'm back? struggling seasonally, I think, would oh. be a good way to put it. Not so much with like, you know, hours on the clock, but so much with seasons. So we, we need to go back to, you know, maybe, you know, kindergarten or first grade where we where were we learning the seasons, seasons and, and we learned to put, we learned to put <laughs> podcast episodes out in order of the seasons. Yes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so listeners, listeners. Yeah. Okay. Go uh, ahead, Augie. So um, uh, you are about ready. You're about to uh, listen to um, or read the transcript for a podcast episode that we recorded um, a couple of months ago. And our intention was to have uh, a summer of favorites um, where each episode would uh, be a discussion of some of our favorite things related to government and politics. Um, and they weren't our normal fare of government documents or political events. Yeah, or facts. They weren't facts. <laughs> Okay. They were pretty much fact free in Good. most instances in terms of how but, the government runs or yeah. based in government documents, which is generally what we do. Yes. And our intention was to record a number of these episodes and then release them during the summer. Um, uh, and for a get to know you kind of summer. This yeah. Is sort of our summer of favorites so that you could get to know us. Yeah, a little mm -hmm. more personally of what we think of when we think of favorites. Yes, and but and, like all good plans. Yeah, uh, you know uh, uh, what is it? The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray, right? Yeah. And in this instance, one of us is a man and one of us is a mouse. <laughs> what is that? Is, uh, uh, is that a? I didn't uh, want to take away your manhood by saying we were mice. We're both mice. Okay. The the quote though is from Dickens, right? Right. Okay. Um, anyways, so <laughs> we were about you know we recorded these episodes. Our intention was to go ahead and release them during the summer. However, um, we received a bunch of emails. Okay, from faithful listeners. Um, who wanted to know um, if or and or when we were going to have podcast episodes about the recently completed Supreme Court term that finished up the last week of June. The recently non-controversial, completely boring, nothing else happened in, in, in the whole thing, U.S. Supreme Court yes. term. That's so, the one you mean, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, the United States Supreme yeah. Court. Several of our readers slash listeners were on fire, basically. Yeah, they were yes. like, oh, my gosh, you have to address this. Yes. So yeah. what we did, listeners, is um, we scrapped our summer of favorites, um, but we didn't scrap it. We just delayed release of those episodes. So what follows is one of those episodes. Thank you for your patience for us with our timing and once um, we're through our fall of favorites yes we'll we, come back with regularly scheduled episodes of normalness yes where we focus on government documents government processes okay things in the news okay yep. um but uh we facts uh, and figures and all the things that are true yes instead of all the things that are our opinions which may or may not be true <laughs> 
Thanks, Augie. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good because um, we get to talk about movies. <laughs> I know, and it's your favorite of, of even in the summer of favorites. It's especially, especially favorite for you. you uh, to watch yeah. all the movies. Uh, um, yeah, I, I uh, uh, for listeners, if you don't understand uh, 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 the genesis, um, when um, uh, I was a uh, a boy um, in my. Uh, uh, folks, uh, marriage was dissolving. Uh, one of my refuge, I had two uh, places of refuge. Uh, one was the library. I mean, come on now. You know, with a library card, I could get access to any damn book I wanted. Right? And librarians are awesome. <laughs> yes, right. And in the summertime, it was nice and cool. And in the winter, it was nice and warm. <laughs> I mean, what a great place. But the other refuge uh, was uh, the movie theater. Um, it was Back of, when matinees were actually cheap. Yeah, matinees were cheap. Um, and, and popcorn didn't cost $10,000. Yes. And, and, and because we had a movie theater downtown um, in my small hometown, which was only a 10 minute walk from my house. Um, and again, I lived in a small town. So, I mean, uh, my mom would have gotten phone calls if I deviated from the prescribed path of, you know, from our house to the movie theater, right? Um, but, you know, I would spend hours, okay, uh, just watching movies. There's something magical about going to the movies, right? There's something magical about sitting in a dark theater with other people, having experience. It's almost akin to church in some yeah, it's ways. Communal. Yeah, it's very having communal. Having this, yeah. this group experience. And so I don't know if you, if you ever... I don't know if audiences do this now because I haven't been to a theater in a long time. Um, but it used to be when I was a kid, if something particularly wonderful happened, people would clap, like involuntarily. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would yeah. just clap. Or if, and I promise you, at the end of, I can't remember which, whether it's Friday the 13th or, or um, one of the others, when he comes out of the lake <laughs> to, to get the girl at the end, yeah. the screaming in yes. the theater right the involuntary screaming all of that kind of that's people interacting together yes right in this experience that's that's not only just like church but also like sports other things where you have this communal reaction to what you're seeing yeah, yeah. And, there's and, something and, to be said for that that's very powerful i think yeah and it's not only powerful but and again uh, we talked about this um in a previous podcast episode, motion pictures are uh, just a, 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 an extremely powerful um, agent of socialization, um, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, politics, society, 
I mean, because you're basically who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to act. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, and, and if you can if you can see yourself up on the big screen as portrayed by okay uh, uh, an, an actor and they're doing stuff and you're just like you know hey I do that stuff and that's not all that unusual and that can be cool right I mean that's so affirming right um, or right. you know. But also it can be, and an, you know, you and I are talking about it in positive ways, but it can also be a, we will show you films and indoctrinate you into yes, believing that, that this is acceptable. A when certain thing. Or, thing. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, in, 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 in because it's words backed by images, okay, that's a really powerful way to socialize you, right? Right. Okay, so, you know, it can be used as propaganda by the government, um, by elites in society. Okay, you know, this is a favored relationship. This is not. This is a group. This is a group you should be a member of or this is a group you should not be a member of. Right. One of the things that you and I have talked about in film is how over the years, the bad guy has taken on whoever the bad guy is politically in the United States, right? So in the 30s and 40s, the bad guy was always German. Yes. And then in the 50s and 60s, the bad guy was from Asia. Yes. But then 60s, 70s, you're getting Russia. Yeah, you know, it, right? it, every, every then, bad guy had a Russian, a bad Russian accent. Exactly, right? and then after 9-11, yeah. every bad guy's Arab. Yes. Right. Okay. And, and it's a a way to reinforce this idea of that's them and we're us. Yes. And they are the bad guys. That's right. Okay. Um, or or think about how yeah, movies. Although the British have regularly played bad guys in our world from the very beginning of film <laughs> now, which I think <laughs> fascinating reflects our our odd relationship with England. Right. We still yeah. have. A little bit of leftover trauma from the revolution. Revolutionary War, right? Yeah, where we've held on to this sort of, yeah, but, you know, the British guy, he's probably bad. I mean, sometimes he's cool. He's James Bond. Yeah. But a but, lot of times. But even Bond, okay, is, is, is a misogynistic, you know, you know, right. Prick, right? Okay, <laughs> right. But nevertheless. Right. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at our favorite um, uh, motion pictures that have some sort of political theme to them, okay? Yeah, we didn't, if we had left it at favorite film, we'd be here. Oh, we, good Lord. That would be 50 episodes. We oh my God. We could have a whole separate podcast for that. Maybe we'll do that someday. Yeah, right. We'll have a second podcast of Nia and Augie talk about films in general, but these were political films. And uh, also keep in mind, they are um, political films that, uh, in three of the cases are from our youth slash yes you know age age one of them is uh, Augie is not old enough to have seen Casablanca in there in the film in sorry no, it, in the movie in the theater, theater. <laughs> you can go see it in the theaters that's 1942 but I'm not that old he's right? not that old but the rest of, so do keep in mind that we are talking about from our sort of uh, and, and that's one age. of the yeah, that's, that's one of the elements of socialization, which is you know what scholars, influenced us. Yeah, scholars identify the fact that many of us develop our lifelong beliefs and values at an early age, and that's one of the reasons why 
media, particularly movies, can have such a powerful effect on how we view politics, right? Right. And so I, I let the cat out of the bag, so I want you to go first and talk about Casablanca because well, no, I, I did mean, not even <laughs> I did not even consider it <laughs> as a political like it didn't even. And then when he put it on his list, I was like, oh man, that is a perfect political fit, like in the sense of talking about it. Yeah. So the basic plot for those of you who have not watched Casablanca and and, oh, and I'm, spoiler and, alert. Yes. We're about to talk about the plots of four films. Yes. Okay. Plus yes. any else, anything else that comes up in that in as part of that discussion. So yes. Yes. don't listen to this if you have not, and we will try to tell you the name of the film so that you can either skip or. Yeah. So Casablanca was made in 1942, um, and it's considered um, even to this day uh, one of the best American films ever made. Yep. Uh, the the basic plot. Um, is that um, you have a cynical uh, American expatriate cafe owner um, in the location is Casablanca, um, who struggles to decide whether or not to help his former lover and her fugitive husband uh, escape the Nazis in what was then known as the French Morocco. Which so is that- where Casablanca is. Casablanca mm-hmm. is in modern-day Morocco. That's right. Okay. Now, the reason why I love it, okay, uh, of all the gin joints in all the world, it has classic lines uh, of, of dialogue, right? The movie's chock full of them. Round up the usual suspects. Yep. Here's, here's looking at you, kid. We'll always have pairs. I'm shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in this establishment. <laughs> okay. Yep. And of course, the one that uh, Nia led off with of what is it all the gin uh, all the gin joints in all the world she walks into my right like because yes this okay. is a former lover. lover yes the love of his life right and then it, you know you forgot one here what's that play it which play is it again. almost always mis misstated as play it again sam but he says play it play it sam that's which right means their song their yes in, in, in the song by the way he is as time goes by, okay, which is one of the reasons why I, I love this movie because <laughs> I get to hear that song, right? I love that song, right? But there are other reasons why I love it. Uh, Rick, uh, the um, uh, the cafe owner, uh, played by Humphrey Bogart, um, is an isolationist. Um, the movie also talks about dangers of nationalism versus the positives of nationalism, right? So it's got for me the classic, if you will balance and trade-off of nationalism. Um, Because your negative is the Third Reich. Yes, the negative is, you know, the Third Reich, but the positive of nationalism is all the exiled French living in Casablanca. Right, right? all the people who ran from France when it was invaded. Yeah. uh, But who uh, still believe in France and still love France. Yes, okay, and that's nationalism, right? And then the last reason... It has some of the the best actors of that time, Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, um, uh, Claude Rains, Sidney Greenstreet, okay, Peter Lorre, um, uh, Heinrich. Okay, the list goes on and on. I mean, at, at any point in that movie, you're just kind of sort of like, 
oh wow 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 right in in, in you know you got to watch the movie like four or five times not to be awed by just the the sheer talent that was assembled for that movie right so yeah it's um amazing the, who's in that movie like yes okay the movie's got great political and social commentary of the early days of World War II. So for instance, it's got anti-fascist propaganda, okay? <laughs> it criticizes the United States for being isolationist as represented by Rick, okay? At least Rick early on in the movie, right? I mean, one of the great line for me, one of the great lines of the movie is uh, Rick is being uh, uh, questioned uh, by a German officer who says, um, uh, what's your nationality? And Rick's response was, I'm a drunkard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love it. He was just like, I'm not even going to cop to being an American. I'm just a drunkard, right? <laughs> okay. Um, it employed, if you will, tenets of the U.S. government's guidelines for using film, right? So, I mean... The United States had already come out with guidelines to be used by Hollywood to kind of sort of rally American support against the Nazis, right? It talks about the sacrifices of war. I mean, th there there are subplots in this movie, like um, um, uh, 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 human trafficking, um, trying to get papers to leave Casablanca. Uh, um, uh, you know, people who can't go back to their home countries, people who are exiled, okay, for various reasons, not all of them related to war, right? I mean, it's it's just got chock full of this stuff. The diversity of the cast, right? There were Americans, there were non-Americans, there were Jews, there were French, okay? Green Street was British, Right. I mean, it, it's like all over the map. Right. Um, well, showing you that. The unitedness of them against the German. Yes. OK. Right. Yeah. Um, the location. Right. OK. It, it, for those of you who are Catholic or religious, the location is purgatory. Right. Because it's neither heaven nor hell. Right. And that's like a thematic element in most film noir movies, which is where you are located may not may not be where you want to be, but it could be worse. Right. And that's where that's what Casablanca is. Right. It could right. be it's, worse. It's not home, but it could be like it could be a lot worse. Yes. Right. I already mentioned human trafficking. Um, it's got a discussion of the costs of remaining isolated and neutral, which for listeners, if you don't know, well into the early 1940s, before the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, an overwhelming majority of Americans wanted, not, wanted to have nothing to do with the war in Europe, right? Right. Okay. And you they, see that with Rick. He doesn't want yeah. to, but then by the end of the movie... He's he's invested in yeah, and it's an analog to what happens to the United States. Okay, <laughs> it's the 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 metamorphosis 
okay, of, of Rick, okay, is just a great analog, okay? Uh, it has portrayals of the Third Reich uh, designed to show how powerful the war's enemy actually was, right? Um, uh, how if one resists, one can be resurrected. So Rick, Laszlo, Renault um, are all examples of how even though you might have failed earlier in your life, if you keep on trying, you can get resurrected, okay, into somebody or something good. Um, and then the 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 course of Rick and Ilsa's relationship, okay. Um, uh, I mean, she breaks his heart, but he does something at the end of the movie, okay. And this is a spoiler alert. He basically gives up his opportunity to leave Casablanca. So his former lover and her husband, okay, can leave. Right. Okay. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, an heroic act from a character who for most of that movie was not heroic, right? Okay. Ah, I, I know I ran through a lot there, but it's just got so much good political stuff there, right? <laughs> I mean, when I when I show this movie in my politics and film class, my students' reaction is a lot like yours, Nia, which is they watch the movie and they're just like, this is a, a love story. And I'm like, okay, really? And, yeah, then I, I, and, and then the more you think through it, you're like, no, this has almost nothing to do with the love story. This is, yes. this is about how, well, this was... In, in my opinion, an encouragement to get involved in the war and an encouragement yes. to, to, to say you are not alone in the world and America cannot be alone. And it can't just say, well, we're just off here doing our own jam. Like, yes. We can't be on the sidelines, right? right. We're when too big. We're too powerful. We're too involved in the rest of the world. And the threat is it's too so severe. Yeah. Right. Okay, that we can't just look away. We just can't go ahead and say, I'm a saloon owner. I don't have to be, yeah. I don't have to have an opinion. Yeah, right. Okay. And, and and again, for you know, there are so many Americans even today who are like, I don't want to have an opinion. Well, I mean, you live in a democracy. Okay. At some point in time, okay, something in your life is going to force you to have an opinion, right? Okay. And if you're not voting, we'd like to put in a plug that you should be voting, which is yeah. having an opinion. That's right. Okay. Um, so but I've forgotten that you have another film that's. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, no. That you had another film from the the late '40s because I had remembered your third film, which is from our lifetimes. Um, yeah. Again. Listeners remembering that Augie was not born in 1949. He had not yet been born. Um, <laughs> but he does like these historical films for good reason. And, uh, yeah, the and next this movie. one is also very appealing. Yes. But uh, this one is much clearer about its yeah. political. Yeah. Uh, the, the name of the movie is All the King's Men. The original was made in 1949. Um, it, it was remade um, uh, more recently um, with Sean Penn. Um, but I, I recommend the original, which is in black and white. 
The basic uh, plot of All the King's Men is the rise and fall of a corrupt politician who makes his friends richer and retains power uh, by uh, um, uh, uh, being a populist. You know, I'm I'm the everyman. I'm going to represent you because the that current doesn't sound like anybody anybody of recent vintage. That's right. <laughs> now but it's not based on Donald Trump. Obviously, he was not. Was he born in nineteen? He was born in nineteen forty-nine. Anyway. Yeah, but but it's it, not based on him. It's actually no. based on someone else, right? Yeah. Uh, the movie was adapted from a book that was based loosely on the life and career of uh, Huey Long, the infamous kingfish. Of um, Louisiana. He, yes, he was the governor, and at one point, governor and senator at the same time. Because <laughs> why not? In Louisiana. I mean, because <laughs> Louisiana, you can do that. Right? I love Louisiana. It's just a, it's its own okay. special thing. Now, one is there's, there's yeah. 49 kinds of law in the United States. I mean, there's right two kinds of law. There's 49 states, and then there's Louisiana, yes, which is Napoleonic law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Louisiana follows Napoleon Napoleonic law, whereas the other 49 states basically, okay, uh, are, are derived from British common law. And yeah. you're just kind of, right? <laughs> okay. Bit. There are so many themes in this movie, but one of the dominant themes is the connection of populism to fascism, okay? So populism is this basic idea that um, uh, uh, the systems in a society, particularly government systems, don't work for you and people like you, right? Right, and they are for the elites. Yes, yeah, the elites control everything, and the systems don't work for you. And a populist candidate says, I'm not one of those elites. I'm one of you. I'm going to clean up the swamp. I'm going to clean up the swamp, right? <laughs> I'm going to make this system work for you, right? And that's the appeal of a populist, right? right? But the problem is the populist basically is making an argument that only they can solve the problems. So everything in government becomes about them. And right, if, which is what we see, and I'm not, by the way, connecting Trump to Hitler, but it's what we see with Hitler. The yes. first thing Hitler says is, I can solve our starving problem, like, because there were huge problems with people going hungry and people not having jobs and all kinds of stuff that was going on in Germany after World War One. We get him saying, I can solve this problem, and then eventually it turns into, I am the government. I, the uh, government is me, not a democracy, not a group of people who I, to whom I have to listen or be held accountable. Yeah, it's not. It's no longer the institutions. It's me, and anybody who speaks against the government speaks against me. Right. Anybody who disagrees with me, okay, is by default disagreeing with you because I'm your savior. And they are the bad guy. And they are the bad guys, right? And, and, that's, and thus, it's okay to do anything we want to them. Yeah. And in what this leads to, okay, is um, uh, in, 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 in the movie, um, um, you see 
um, uh, in, in the character, the main character um, is played by a great actor, Roderick Crawford, <laughs> okay? Uh, he basically ends up being so corrupt, okay, um, that it begs the question, does populism lead to fascism? And, and today, unfortunately, you know, we see both sides of the ideological spectrum refer to their opponents as fascists, okay? But it, and, and that's usually incorrect, right? Okay, um, um, because fascism is not the purview, is not the domain of just one side of the ideological spectrum or the other, right? Okay. But the movie does beg the question, are the excesses of democracy, do they lend themselves to fascism, right? You know, and this gets at the, the, the constant struggle between individual rights and the collective, right? right. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I love this movie, because if democracy left unchecked leads to populism, does populism in, inevitably lead to fascism? Okay, um, so um, uh, um, and in, in this movie, okay, the, the you know <laughs> the king, <laughs> you know, represents the second type of political leadership as identified by Max Weber, the charismatic, right? And we're supposed to be living in an era of the third type, which is bureaucratic. The power rests with the position, not the person, right? Right. We booted out the first type, which is hereditary. Yes. Okay. That's well, dynasties. Yeah, those dynasties, those are monarchies, etc. right? But we have this tension, even today, between the second and third types, right? I mean, you know, Trump is an easy example. But you can even go ahead and make the argument that occasionally the Biden administration basically acts like the second type, right? Congress isn't going to act, so I'm just going to go ahead and issue an executive order. Well, what if you don't have the authority to do it? <laughs> but I'm president. Okay. I have the authority. If the president does it, according to President Nixon, if the president does it, that makes it legal. That makes it legal because I'm the president, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. And that was Nixon. Right. Okay. That was 19, you know, you know, in the early 1970s. Right. So when I show this movie, I have my students who are just kind of sort of like, wow, so this is not brand new stuff. I'm like, you know, because I'm like, no, this stuff has been going on throughout American history. And it points out the issues of democracy. You know, it, 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 as I mentioned, I said, there might have been a good reason why the framers didn't trust the masses. <laughs> and of course, you know, many students are just like, oh, dude, that's like so cynical, so harsh. And I'm like, but is it? Right. Well, and what's interesting is the year is 1949. Yes. And you're, and you're getting the Cold War. The Cold yes. War is starting. Yes. Right? You're getting this whole idea of, of leaders that become fascist leaders that become you know larger than life right? right okay i alone can go ahead and solve your problems because i'm one of you right okay I mean, that's really? how stalin portrayed himself 
Sure. Okay. Mao Zedong in China. Right. Right. Okay. You know, pick a pick an authoritarian leader, a dictator from a third world country. Okay. Exactly. Okay. For yeah. Okay. Um, should I go ahead and do my uh, uh, my uh, uh, third should. movie? Okay. <laughs> we moved to the 1970s for the third movie. So for those who are looking for a spoiler, uh, Chinatown. Yes. 1974. Yes. So the the basic plot. You have a private detector, uh, private detective, uh, um, a character by the name of Jack uh, uh, Giddis. Okay, he's hired to expose an adulterer in 1930s Los Angeles, but in the process, he finds him caught up in this this complex web of deceit, corruption, the Los Angeles water wars, and murder. <laughs> right? It has all. It has all my favorite stuff, right? <laughs> okay. So uh, it was made in a style that's known as neo-noir, right? And it's uh, the genre that is the successor to my favorite type of genre known as film noir. Film noir movies were made in the 40s and 50s uh, that basically challenged the dominant um, if you will, style or ethos of Hollywood filmmaking of that time. And at the time, okay, good guys always won. Women were always virtuous and society would eventually be positive, optimistic, right? And film noir movies were just like, no, it isn't, right? <laughs> you know, good guys often have bad qualities or have done bad things, okay? Women were, you know, sometimes femme fatales, okay? They were as, you know, deceitful, as evil, if you will, as men, okay? And oh, yeah, by the way, uh, the good guy doesn't always win, okay? Um, society isn't, you know, this happy, happy, joy, joy place, right? Right. So, and to, can I just mention the two actors in this? Yes. Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway. Oh, good Lord. Yes. Both of whom are seriously ex really good actors. Like, yes. you believe them in this movie. Yes. You believe them. Yes. Um, sometimes in movies, even movies I love, you can tell somebody is acting. Acting. Right? Like, yeah, but in this movie, you're, and again, you get quickly drawn into. Yes, right. All of it as a, whoa, whoa, this is. Yeah, Real you can. Feeling. Yeah, you can believe Jack Nicholson was a private detective in 1930s Los Angeles, right? right. Okay. So, but this movie does have some common elements with film noir, right? The world is dark, unsavory. You have a disillusioned hero. The law is often corrupt, and when it isn't corrupt, it can be manipulated for corrupt purposes, right? You have a victim who's both innocent and compromised, okay? That would be played by Faye Dunaway. And those who are evil and corrupt are oftentimes stronger and bigger, okay, than the quote-unquote hero, right? Okay, so it ha definitely has a David versus Goliath, okay, if you will, theme running throughout. Well, one of the reasons why I like this movie politically is that it exposes a number of fundamental tensions 
that you see in 20th and 21st century modern and postmodern democracies. So you got the wealthy elite, okay, played great, you know, played extremely well by John Houston, right? Uh, uh, what's his name? Noah, uh, Noah Cross, right? Uh, versus the public interest, right? Um, you have wealthy influence over elected officials versus the working poor in communities. And then it has these excellent sustainability issues. I mean, before it's time, right? right. Land ownership and usage, water, energy, farmers, right? All the kinds of things that we're still talking about, Nia, today. Well, and 1974 would have been three years after the first, uh, three or four years after the first um, Earth Day. Yes. Right? Yes. So you're starting, I mean, Polanski, Polanski's the director. Yeah. Is reaching into those themes as well, because that was a, that was a big thing in the, in the early 70s, as people in, especially in California, were saying, Hey, what's up with this water thing? Like, uh, yeah. Yes, I mean, and in, in, in even the director. I'm glad you mentioned the director, Roman Polanski, is controversial. Uh, he's a complicated figure. Complicated figure because he had to leave the United States. He left the United States after he was convicted of raping a minor. Okay, uh, what in the uh, later 1970s, right? She was okay. 13. Yeah, yeah. She was 13. He was, you know clearly an adult male, right? Um, he gets convicted and then he leaves. Moves to okay. France. Yeah, moves to France, right? Okay. Um, uh, but there are other political themes in this movie, um, uh, how some individuals don't fit, you know, the, the, the rules, the regulations of large organizations. <laughs> I mean, because Giddish used to be a member of the police department, but he just couldn't comply with authority i'm like hello you know that's me <laughs> right um but how outsiders struggle to fit into a fast-moving growing society i mean because you see this there are very scenes in the movie like you know um uh, uh you know the movie's called chinatown but there's hardly any discussion or any roles for Chinese Americans. Right. Chinatown is kind of sort of viewed as a place to where you don't want to go because you don't know how things are done in that community of Los Angeles. Well, and one of the most famous quotes from this movie is it's 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 Chinatown. Yes. Basically a cynical wrapping up of it's just how it works here. Like Yes. And there's nothing you can do about it. Here's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, again, uh, it, it's a it, it's a more modern movie, but it's a movie that uses a genre from the past, right? To go ahead and highlight political issues that are still plaguing, if you will, Los Angeles in California even today, which is okay. Are we going to have enough water? Okay, um, to be able to live, because when you build a community, right, fifty years on, this is still yeah, yeah. When you build a community in basically what was then, you know, originally a desert, okay, you're gonna need water, right? 
And if you take water for residential and com commercial purposes, you're going to take water away from farmers, right? <laughs> okay. And then you have food problems. Like it's all intertwined. Yes, right? Okay. Um, and basically what he's told in this film is you can't solve it. Yeah, you can't solve it. You shouldn't even bother challenging it, okay? And, 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 it's, and it's cynical. It's somewhat depressing. But I showed the students to go ahead and say, guys, these are issues that we have been struggling with, right? And I like it because it's a movie that in some ways starts off as your standard, okay, private detective who's supposed to be investigating an adulterous affair, and it ends up being about so much more, right? You know, where at the end of the movie, you're just like, wow, I'm exhausted, right? Okay. Chinatown is, a bit, is a, a bit of a slog. Yes, right. For those who are not who are wanting a popcorn film, it's not a popcorn film. It's not a popcorn film. I almost picked L.A. Confidential, which is um, is that one of your you want to call that a special mention? L.A. Confidential is such a good film. Yeah, L.A. Confidential. Uh, uh, early, uh, early Russell Crowe. Yeah, Kevin uh, Spacey. Yeah, uh, Kim Basinger. Yeah, Kim Basinger, James Cromwell's in it. It was written and directed, uh, directed by Curtis Hansen, and it was adapted from a well-known, uh, a well-known uh, James Elroy book. Um, but if you want to delve even more into Los Angeles and politics of the 1940s and 50s, oh, good Lord, okay, yeah. But that's also a, a taxing movie, yes. right? Because yes. by, yeah, because a lot by the, of moving parts in that movie. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of things to subplots to keep up with, but also it's just emotionally taxing that film. Yes. So Nia, you have uh two movies. My and, films are less taxing. Yeah. I will say that my films are my films are easier. If you want to start easier, folk, <laughs> yeah. um, you you might start with my films. So my films, I'm gonna start with Dave. Okay. 1993. Uh, starring the great Kevin Klein. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So the main plot of the story is that the president has a stroke. While he's having an affair with one of his staffers. Right. Yes. And the and and they find a lookalike, a guy who looks just like him. Yes. To stand in for him. Yes. So and Kevin this Klein a... plays both of these parts, right? At the beginning, he's playing the president. Yes. Doing his thing, as it were. Yes. And then he plays him, he plays Dave coming in, and and they don't tell the first lady. And the chief they don't of tell staff, anybody. The chief of staff who devises this plot, listeners. Is okay. Langella. Yeah, it's played by the great Frank Langella, right? Uh, okay. He could um, not be a better bad guy. Yes, right? Uh, okay. Sigourney Weaver plays the wife. Yeah, the, uh, the first person. lady. Yeah. And she and her husband are so distant from each other that they're pretty sure they can get away with not telling her that they've got a lookalike. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. And in fact, they do get away with it. They get away with it. Close, for... to, near, close to the end of the film. Yes. And, and um, when she's her. like, wait, why are you being so nice? And then all of a sudden she realizes there's no way my husband would be this nice. Yes. Um, yes. So, and then through the plot of the film, he, he, he's an everyman who's now trying to run the, the government. Power, right. Yes. Got the power to be the president. Now, Frank Langella does a lot of 
a lot of the work because he's the chief of staff and because he wants to run the government himself, but he's not popular enough to get elected. Right? Okay, so well, hold off right there, Nia. That's actually one of the great, if you will, um, uh, uh, points of analysis this movie is making, which is that over time, the chief of staff for many presidents has assumed more and more responsibility, right? Oh, you know, it has they, inordinate power. Yeah, inordinate power, right? So on one hand, you know, in a previous podcast episode, we discussed the West Wing and in the chief of staff played by the great John Spencer, uh, Leo McGarry, right? And Leo is, you know, great, okay? But he's doing it to further the the aims and wishes of the president. But in this movie, the chief <laughs> of staff, the yeah, okay, the chief of Basically. staff, okay, is this power hungry. Oh my gosh, and everybody else on staff is afraid of him. And he's, Yes, right, yeah, right. He's a, I mean, he's a monster, which Frank Langella plays really well because I think he likes this sort of um, uh, deliciousness that comes with Oh, being sure. The bad guy, right? Yeah. You hear that with actors a lot, that especially when they've consistently played relatively good characters or relatively benign characters, that when they get to play somebody bad, when they get to play Dracula, he also played Dracula. When yeah. He gets to play Nixon. Yes. Right? There's these nuanced, they get more nuance out of the bad guys than they do out of the good guys. Um, <clears throat> but this this film also basically. It it highlights for me the question of who's really pre prepared to be president. Yes. Like nobody really knows how to be president. No. When you get there the first day and they and they start telling you things, you're like, whoa, wait, what? This is how this runs? Like this is crazy balls. Because it's not, it is not a there is no truth. What there really should be is the way chairs and vice chairs work in committees. Yes. Where the year before you are president, you shadow the president and you get this sort of introduction. But that's not what happens. And what happens in this movie is that because Dave doesn't know what he can't do, yes. he does stuff. Yes. Right? Because he just, he, because there is no guideline to that sort of, here's how you do the job of president. The scene that I love the most is the budget scene. So he needs to find money for a priority of the first lady because he really likes the first lady and he wants her to be happy. So um, he needs to find money. So he calls a friend, an accountant friend. Played, who, played, played by the great Charles Broden, right? Who comes in, right, and, and says, and he says, we got to find this much money in the budget. And the guy's like, are you kidding me? And and they sit there all night and they go through the budget until they find a way to get the money to do this thing that she wants done. Yes. And it and it so speaks to me that scene because I there's a part of me that wants to sit down with the budget and say and draw lines through things and write other things in and do it. Like I totally understand that desire. And it's um, and I totally understand the desire of why not? Why can't we do that? And it's so unrealistic because the last time we actually right. we had a pre, uh, we had a president who had probably the the kind of detailed knowledge about the budget 
was President Jimmy Carter. I was going to say it was President Carter and everybody hated that he had such detail. In his yeah, life. right. I mean, because they were just like, <laughs> you know, he's losing the forest through the trees. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, we have a federal government budget that is probably for 99.5% of most Americans unintelligible, right. right? We can't make sense of it, right? There are There is so much that's in the federal government budget that if we called in our really smart, you know, accounting friends, they would say, are you nuts? Okay. You know, kind of sort of like, you know, the, you know, the character played by Charles Grogan was just like, we can't do that. We can't just cut that out of the budget. And Dave's like, why not? Yeah. It, you know, and his friend was just like, I don't understand how the budget, how you guys budget, right? <laughs> because if you budgeted that way, you know, for a small business, okay, they you would fail. go, yeah, they would fail. They would go belly up. Right. The other thing you see in Dave is sort of this desire to do the right thing, the desire to yes. do a good thing, and the political pressures that come to bear on that. Yes. That often prevent a person from doing the right thing. I think that Americans tend to be rather cynical and say that our presidents are all, you know, one, it, it's just their level of criminality. It's not whether they're criminals or not, you know, it's just how much of a criminal they are. I think that a lot of presidents honestly believe they are doing the right thing or want to do the right thing. They just, they're so, yeah, I mean, in, in the, the system is not set up. The system is set up to be antagonistic. Yes. The system is set up for hostility. And, and, yeah. And, you know, in, in the juxtaposition between Dave as one of your favorite political movies and my th three favorite political movies, I mean, my three are. Very dark, very cynical, very untrusting, right? And I'm gonna get there in a minute. No, but but no, but even <laughs> with your other movie, okay, there are still heroes, right? And we'll That's get true. to another movie in just a few moments. But again, one of the reasons why I liked you picking Dave was the fact that this represents the flip side of how many Americans would hope their president acts right okay this is really the guy you want to have a beer with with yeah that's right i mean right? that whole you know, yeah and and and, and and even think about presidents in our lifetime uh nia um uh, i would easily put and you and i've discussed the, the personality types of, of presidents in a previous podcast episode but you know i would put for instance um, Ronald Reagan, Bush 41, Bill Clinton, um, to a certain extent, Bush 43, um, but even Barack Obama, they were generally hopeful people. Right. They wanted to do good, right? And we could disagree with their policies, but I don't think anybody would go ahead and say Barack Obama was not an optimistic person, Right. Right. I mean, he wrote a book, for instance, you know, The Hope of Our Fathers, right? <laughs> okay. Um, or think about, you know, Bush 41, you know, the first President Bush. Okay. That guy had seen some of the most despicable stuff, had been shot down in World War uh, uh, II. Okay. But he still believed in government service and thought he could make a difference and he could make, you know, the United States safe for its citizens. Right. right. I mean, that requires a level of hope. Okay, that, okay, 
um, I think to a certain extent you see in a character like Dave in this movie where he was just like, this is important to the first lady and I want to make her happy. Right. Right. Okay. And there's no reason I can't. No, no. Yeah, just sit down and find the money. And, yeah, it, well, <laughs> and, and which is hilarious because they just do. Yeah. Right. They work all night and they find it. And, and for any of us, and, he, and then he, the next day, all the cabinet members come in and he's like, okay, I think we found the money. And he yeah. starts describing what they're going to need. He says, will you give up this? And this person says, uh, sure. And then it ends up being like he gets by. Yeah, this becomes a collective because it has momentum, right? Okay. Because they don't want to disappoint the president. Right. right? And yeah. so, uh, but yeah. they also capture, they, they, they catch on to his enthusiasm. Yes. He's right? like, great, okay, there's one. And he starts with a notepad. He starts writing down the amount of money until <laughs> he gets to where he needs to be, which I just think is awesome. Yeah, and I want to go, yeah. go ahead and show that to every single kid who is forced to learn, okay, longhand multiplication. Yeah, okay. no kidding. You're going to need the addition and subtraction. I'm like, here, guys, here's the reason why you do this. Because if the president in this movie is going to go ahead and figure it, find it, you know, find a couple million dollars, okay, for a special project, you too can do that simply because you learn long, you know, <laughs> subtraction and long addition. But anyways. Yeah, and Dave, and Klein is just likable. That's yeah. also part of it is that he is a likable. Yeah, because his job before he gets um, uh, recruited by the chief of staff is he's a director of a, a, a job placement service, right? Right, so okay. he's an optimistic Yes, right. I mean, his job is to go ahead and turn people's lives around, right? Right. So the chief of staff probably picked the wrong person to go ahead. <laughs> okay. And be a cynical stand-in for Yeah, them. right. You know, and he for, actually is told that it's because the president is had a stroke, but he'll be coming back. Yes. Yeah. But the president is not coming back. The president nope. is not, yeah. Nope. So there's a whole there's a whole subplot there of and Frank Langella's true evilness. Um but so I would recommend that one. And my my other recommendation, and um, uh, saying the title now, all the president's men, so that you know the spoilers are coming. Yes. So basic plot: two Washington Post reporters track down the start of the cover up of the Watergate scandal. Yes. I first of all, I I honestly do not know. I mean, when you said best political movie or your favorite, not best, your favorite political movie, I, I didn't go to anything else first because All the President's Men is one of my all-time favorite movies in general, but yeah. especially about politics. Yep. I love that the Post went out on a limb and followed the story Yes. because Nixon was not a person you wanted to make an enemy of. That's right. And if they had not gotten the story, the the Washington Post would have gone under. Like it would have been a nightmare for Graham. What was her name? Um, uh, da, 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 da. I can't yeah. remember her first name. Yeah. Um, in, in, in Catherine, Catherine Graham. Yeah, Catherine um, Graham. Um, uh, she was the she was the owner of yeah, the Washington she, Post. Yeah, yeah, owner publisher of the Washington Post. Um, her husband um uh, had been the previous publisher and he had committed suicide and before him her dad owned the washington post and the washington post was struggling financially 
um, uh, in the early 70s. Um, and many questioned whether or not she could successfully lead the post. But she had assembled an okay, amazing group of people. Ben you know, Bradley. Yeah, uh, Ben Bradley uh, as the editor in chief um, and uh, the head of the newsroom, the head of the um, uh, domestic desk, because they basically referred to domestic versus foreign news desks. Um, and they had been given carte blanche to hire reporters. And this movie is, is about those two reporters, okay, and their process to expose the White House's involvement in the cover-up of the break-in of the Watergate uh, hotel and office complex. Um, yeah, it's Woodward and Bernstein. Yes. Are the two reporters. Yes. Uh, played by? Uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Robert yes. Redford, who at that time was one of the prettiest people on the planet. Yeah. Um, uh, and Dustin Hoffman, who is not particularly pretty, but who is a brilliant actor. They're both brilliant actors. Yes, yes. And they pulled it off beautifully. They pulled it off so well that I think that there are people who don't actually know what Woodward and Bernstein look like. Their image of Woodward and Bernstein is Redford and Hoffman. Yes, yeah. Like mm -hmm. if you said, if you put out a plate of pictures and you said, pick out Woodward and Bernstein, people would point to Redford and Hoffman and say, there they are. Yes. You'd be like, not quite, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but what, what happens is there's a little, at the beginning, there's a, uh, Woodward goes to court because there is a hearing for a bunch of Cubans yes. who were caught in an office in the Watergate. And when yes. he goes and he sees who the lawyers are, the and he's lawyers curious. are these big time. Yeah, they're they're lawyers in a very well known Washington D.C. law firm. No he, way that a bunch of Cuban janitors. Yes, which is what these guys are portrayed as, could have afforded these lawyers. There's and no he, way, and he and he gets in the curious. back of his brain. Yes, yes, like this can't be right. Yes, there's got to be something else here. I, and one of the reasons why I show this movie, uh, Nia, in my politics and film class is that I show how there was, there has been at various times in our country's history, a very prominent role where the media was not considered biased. It was considered essential right. for the functioning democracy. Well, Walter Conkrow. Yeah, because how else would we have known if not for a couple reporters, okay? And by the way, a, a big chunk of this movie, guys, is, I would not say is boring, but it's about the process. Oh, right? it is boring. Okay. It's boring because the process is boring. Yes. You have to go through and fact check. You have to find all these people. You have to try to connect this person to this person. How would they be associated? You have all of that work that journalists do in order to be able to present a story is not the flashy, exciting part of, of journalism where the person sits down in front of the camera and actually tells you the story. It's the background that yeah. goes into that to make sure that you're fact-checking everything. And at one point they got something wrong. Yeah, they got something. Was, 
Yes. A, a you know, nightmare because and like, how many if times they've gotten that wrong, what else did they get wrong? Like there's all these other questions that come up and you know, how many times you gotta call up people only to have them, you know, um, um, you know, uh, decline your phone call. Right. Or you can, and they you, have a great source plays played by Hal Holbrook, who you don't see in the film. Yes. Right? He's in shadow the whole time. And he has the best line, I think, in any movie, in any political movie yes. ever. Um, which is so, so Woodward. So Woodward has a source at the FBI, right? Okay, that's deep throat, deep throat. Okay, um, and which is a takeoff on a film on a porn film, a porn film, yes, right? Um, but okay, anyway. and Woodward and Bernstein are at a point to where they've run out of leads and they know there's some connection to at least Nixon's reelection committee from uh, 1971 and 72, but they right. don't- They can't quite okay. figure out what it is. Okay, so Woodward has a meeting in a DC parking lot, okay, deserted DC parking lot, right? And his source, he's you know, he was asking him, and you know- By it, the way, parking deck. Parking deck. So it's yeah. full of shadows. It's yes. this creepy. Yes, right. Like the scene is marvelously filmed. Filmed, right? And by the way, uh, the the movie was made uh, by uh, a really good 1970s uh, filmmaker, uh, Alan Pakula, right? Um, but um, so, <laughs> Deep Throat knows that the Nixon um, reelection committee hired these burglars but he doesn't want to come out and say it because it would indicate that the fbi has actually done some investigation so he basically is playing a game of cat and mouse with woodward right and woodward was trying to lead him there without actually without exposing yeah the what fbi's the, role in things yeah right and finally okay woodward's getting frustrated Deep throats is like, you know, this guy's a freaking idiot, right? I mean, you could tell it in the tone of his voice. But then Deep Throat, okay, gives probably one of the most sage pieces of advice, okay, ever uttered in a movie. And it's true in every situation in politics. Yes. Follow the money. That's the quote. Follow the money. Follow the money. And yes. if you do that in any situation in politics... And you for that find matter, out who the real players are. Yeah, and if for that matter, okay, I know plenty of uh, cops who are detectives, and they will tell you, okay, okay, they will frequently, okay, follow the money, because a lot of people do a lot of bad things because of money. <laughs> I mean, yep. right? And money greases the wheels of a lot of things. In this, particularly in politics, yes, right. In this particular instance the the campaign for nixon's re-election also paid for the lawyers that's right right yeah. so they, so then he starts to find all the checks yes who the checks are being written to and, and all that sort of stuff so it's just it's a marvelous but part of what it for me is is a reminder of the importance of journalism mm -hmm. and a reminder of the importance of outside observation on politics Yes, because without that, Nixon would have gotten away with it. Yeah, and, and, it and again, have, I mean, if we don't have reporters 
hunting around and asking questions and saying, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't that's, add up. How does that? And that's why you have a freedom of the press in the First Amendment, okay? Because the basic idea is to have an informed citizenry, you need a bunch of professionals who can report on what the government is doing. Because, Nia, you know, most of us, nearly all of us, don't have the time, the energy, the resources. The expertise. Okay, the right. expertise. And you got to know people. Yes. That's the okay. thing. Is you've got to have sources. You've got to know people. You have to have time to cultivate those sources. That's right. That's and why when you see local newspapers going under, that's why it's such a tragedy. Yeah, because, because local politics. How else do you keep yes. the city council flying right how else do you keep the mayor from doing crazy stuff how do you how do you keep any of that from happening local reporting yes and remember for the washington post this is local reporting yeah i mean they're not that, reporting that was their local beat right, right exactly that's, <laughs> okay. that's not that's why he's in there in the docket of the of the courthouse it's not because yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's a local issue and he's supposed to report on it. And then he's like, wait, this mm -hmm. isn't right. But yes. You get that local reporting. That's that's why it's so I think people think, oh, well, that was a national. No, that was a local paper that started off with an article that was buried in the uh, uh, second section of The Washington Post. Yeah, way down. Yeah. Right. OK, way that down. was that was the metro section. It wasn't national politics. It first started off in the metro section of the Washington Post. And yes. turns out to be one of the largest, or if not the largest presidential scandal. Yes, ever. in our country's history. Yes. Or at least so far. Yes. I should say so far, because somebody will at some point make a better scandal. <laughs> Which, by the way. Um, uh, and then uh, they'll make a film about it. And then uh, we'll have foreshadowing, to come and this um, uh, Speaking of political scandals, uh, one of our future uh, podcast episodes will be about our favorite political scandals. <laughs> and, and no doubt we will revisit the Watergate. Yeah, gratuitous self-plug. Sorry, listeners, but I couldn't resist, right? Nope. All good. Okay. Thank you, Augie. It's been a lovely discussion of film. We, we would encourage everybody to see these films. Yes, uh, very much so. And, and if you want to know some of uh, the other films uh, that almost made our favorites uh, episode, Again, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, we'll be happy to go ahead and interact with you all. So thanks, Nia. Thank you, Augie. <laughs>